Good morning, church. Amen. Happy New Year. It's good to see everyone here today. Uh, we are beginning today a new journey, not really a new series, a new journey. And um, I just want to um, throw this out there. Yes, I'm well aware that last Sunday I had a typo in my uh, slide. For those of you that were gossiping about me, you need to repent. No, I'm just kidding. But I did uh, double check, had a, f had a few catches this morning, so we should be good for, for today. I don't think there are any misspellings in the slide, but it was fanatic, not fanatic, whatever that was last week. So we'll move on. But that's uh, one of my goals this year, no misspellings in our, in our slides. But uh, before we get into the, the message today, if you have your worship guide, if you could pull that out, and in the center section under the upcoming events, Updates. I just want to call your attention to really a couple of goals that as a church that we've been praying into to focus on this year. And there are really two things I believe that God wants us to pray into and press into this year. One uh, is that we just continue to pray about a new home location. We, we've loved being here at the school, but uh, it seems to be more than what we really need. And, and, and so we are praying that God would open the door, help us find a location that would uh, provide us the ability to still have separate worship spaces for the adults and kids and, and do what we do, um, but not be uh, such a large environment that we could uh, really grow from, a place that we could really call home. And so we're asking you to commit to praying every day with our search team about God opening that door and providing both financially and physically for a new home location for us. But then secondly, something that's on my heart that I believe that is really important that is going to be a big help to us is that I believe in 2020 that God placed on my heart that he wants to add 20 new families to our church in 2020. So 20 families in 2020. If that were to happen, we'd double in size. It's an amazing thing. So we're not just praying and asking you to commit to pray for 20 new families in 2020. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to pray uh, that God would lay one person or one family on your heart to connect with, to invite, to see, come, and not just visit, but come and become part of our church family. And, and this will be a year-long campaign for us as a church, but also for you as a family, as an individual, uh, personally, that, that you pray not just for opportunity. You can invite somebody every day of the, of the week. You, there's somebody in your life you can invite to church, but we want to ask God, God, who are you chasing this year? Who in my life are you chasing? And you commit to pray for them, pray for their well-being, pray for their life, pray for their relationship with God. If they don't have one, pray that they would be open to spiritual conversation, and then pray that God would use you to connect with them and be able to bring them into the body of Christ, into our church. And in two weeks, we're going to have a special time during our morning service where we dedicate those names. We're going to write those names down on, on a slip of paper. We're going to lay them down here on the stage. We're going to represent this as an altar. We're going to dedicate these names to the Lord. And as a church, we're going to commit to praying for these every week. Every, maybe not by name every week, but we're going to pray for the names. And then in our Sunday night prayer night, we're going to pray for the names that, that we've been dedicating, that God would give you wisdom, insight, that God would um, just reveal what needs to be done for those individuals in your life, 
so that it can empower you through the Holy Spirit to connect with them and share Jesus with them and see them included. So it's not just we're praying that God would magically make 20 families show up in our church, but that God would use you personally to connect with at least one person or one family and that we all can buy into the Great Commission together, which is to engage people where they are and lead them to becoming fully developed followers of Jesus Christ. We're in this thing together. It's not just my job. It's not just... Uh, the kids' ministry's job. It's all of us together. And so I, I think this is going to be a big thing for our family, our, our church family, as we pray for these 20 families. Do you agree? Amen? Amen. So beginning today, begin asking God, who is it in my life you want me to connect with that you want to bring into our church to, to see them begin a relationship with Jesus or get connected to a church family? And in two weeks, we're going to write those names down and have a uh, special dedication service. And I think that's going to be something really special for us. So I appreciate that. Uh, today, we're not beginning a teaching series. More so, we're beginning a teaching journey. We're going to begin looking in the Bible, through the Bible, from start to finish for a specific person uh, and purpose. The Spirit of God's really revealed and laid on my heart that this year our focus needs to be falling in love with Jesus. And that's what we talked about last week, is becoming a fanatic for Jesus Christ, that we would have single-minded zeal and purpose, passionately pursuing the Lord, and, and, and to not just love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but that the love that we have for Him, and that He reciprocates and pours into us, would then pour out onto other people, and that that love would so overwhelm those we come in contact with that they would want to know Jesus. Jesus said that you, the world would know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. And if you look at uh, kind of what goes on in our lives, the way we prioritize our faith, getting together, ministering, reaching out to other people, even sharing our faith, we can look at that we don't really have a faith problem. We have a love problem. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe He died and rose again. We believe there's a heaven and a hell. But to take that belief and turn it into a conversation where we share that belief with someone else has to do with love, not faith. Do you love this person enough to have the conversation. And so many of the things we wrestle with as believers, even in our worship gathering, when you gather for worship, are you here ready to worship the Lord or are you here out of some moral obligation because you believe in Jesus? Are you here to encounter the Spirit of God to not just be prayed for, but to pray for other people, not just to be encouraged, but to encourage other people? What is it that's drawing you here? Is it to be fed or to help feed others? Those things that we wrestle with boil not down to faith, they boil down to love. Because if I'm loving God with all my heart, I will love my neighbor as myself, which means I won't just be here for me, I'll be here for those around me. So we're looking at the Bible to reconnect with not just our faith, but the one in whom our hearts are to beat for. And I'm really excited for this. The Bible, if you didn't know, can be summed up as the greatest romance story. This is the greatest romance story ever written, ever penned. And you may not have thought about it this way, but this is really what it is. The core of this from start to finish, Genesis to Revelation, is a story about a father who is cultivating a bride for his son and how his son pursues with passion 
the bride and how the bride in turn responds to and loves the son from start to finish. And so from page to page, story to story, you can see how God is revealing this spiritual truth, what he's doing in history through the people in the word to pursue the bride, to reveal the bride, cultivate the bride, and also prepare the bride for her husband. And it's an amazing, amazing story. And so I'm excited to begin this, this journey with you. Through this series, we're going to discover who the lover of our soul really is and what it means to be the beloved of God. Do you see yourself as the beloved of God? God loves you, not just because he's loving, but because you are his beloved. In Song of Solomon, all of the books of the Bible, Old and New Testament, point to Jesus. Many, many uh, scholars will tell you, and Jesus even said in the New Testament, that all of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, pointed to him. They talked about him. And in this book of Song of Solomon, it is the romance book of the Bible. Not many pastors preach through it because it's pretty racy. It's almost uh, up there with uh, something Fabio would have been in. And it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. But um, in the Song of Solomon, there's a verse there talking between a husband and a wife, the king and his bride. He says, uh, it says, you are my beloved and my beloved is mine. He is my lover and my beloved. That there's this relationship between God and his people, Jesus and the church, where it's not just that we're loved because he created us, but we are intimately and passionately pursued by the king of all kings. It's an amazing thing. So as I was praying about this series, and really as we're approaching it from this perspective, that it's about God's loving pursuit of his bride, really of us, how can I kind of begin and, and open this series and really illustrate kind of the dynamic of how we're going to be approaching the word of God? And as I was praying, the Holy Spirit kind of laid this illustration on me. I know it wasn't me because I wouldn't have thought of this, but it's, you know, I kind of think it's kind of fun and funny, but also true at the same time. But he put this in my mind. You know, in past decades, it used to be taboo that people would find a mate or a date online. You remember that? It was like the, 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 the joke. I mean, someone found a date online, be like, you f how, how miserable and desperate did you have to be to find a date online? Now there's like 50,000 apps where you could find dates online. Even for um, uh, Christians, there's uh, was Christian Mingle and Equally Yoked and all these uh, play on Christian terms and slogans that are dating services for people to find a mate online. Now, be honest, has anyone here even signed up for a dating service, whether on an app or, yeah, see, it's, it's, it's all around. You know, th this is just a common thing now. It's no longer taboo for this to happen. But, you know, when, when you're signing up for an online dating service, you don't get a date just because you go to the app or the website and click start. You know, it doesn't just start flowing in there. You have to do some things before the, the, the suitors begin to start clicking and, and, and calling. When using a dating service, you have to register for an account, but then also you have to set up an online profile. This is a mini biography that tells about you to help attract people that might therefore be interested in you, someone from the opposite sex. It creates interest in potential candidates. And so uh, to show that you're a good candidate for a date, you need a good and quality profile. According to an article on eHarmony.co.uk, 
They say there's no big secret to success when it comes to online dating. It's not your photo, though a good one helps. And that's probably because most people Photoshop theirs anyways, so people don't believe photos. But it's not a photo that is the best and most important thing. It's not even a boasting of a stellar career that you make so much money a year. Really what it works is genuine insight into your personality, your core values, and your mindset. Your personality, your core values, and your mindset. What's important to you, who you are. In other words, what you're like, what you value, how you think is more attractive to someone of the opposite sex, to a potential date, than anything else. In eHarmony, they list five of the most important characteristics of a great online dating profile, and I have them for you here. Number one, a great online dating profile is that the profiles are sincere. A great dating profile makes you want to learn more about a person because it seems genuine and real. You get the idea that this profile reflects a person with real interests, aspirations, and they're not just a robot. Number two, they use humor. Humor is a much sought-after quality in a potential partner, whether it's adding in a self-deprecating line, telling a joke, or incorporating song titles in your About Me section. Number three, they don't use cliches. The best profiles don't resort to overused words and phrases. Members of their organization talk about themselves in an original way, and they're more likely to get more attention, so it's authentic. Number four, they're clear about what they're looking for. Effective online dating profiles make it clear that the user knows what they want out of a match, whether it's marriage, children, or a partner to travel and share life with. They include a call to action. Number five, a successful profile will often have an invitation for users to get to know them more, whether it's a cheeky, this is, you know, this is for more information, um, you know, click here or whatever the case is, but it's a call to action. So these are the top five tips for a good online profile to help you attract a potential suitor, date, and or mate. But did you know God has a dating profile? You see, there are many gods in this world. And each of these gods has a profile. And God has given us his dating profile. It's hard to preserve miracles that come and go. It's hard to preserve archaeology. They're still trying to dig up cities and ascertain in the historical record what may have happened. But God has provided a written record of everything he's wanted to communicate and everything he's wanted us to know as his dating profile to reveal who he is and what he's like. God's profile is sincere. In the word of God, we can discover that God is knowable. He wants to be known, which is why he's revealed himself through Jesus, through creation, through the Holy Spirit. He also has very real plans for everyone who accepts his dating invitation. Ephesians 2.10 says he's created, created us anew in Christ Jesus to do the things he purposed for us before the foundation of the world. That God has a plan and a purpose, and he's revealed that on his dating profile, his intentions. Number two, God also uses humor. And we don't often think about this, but there's some funny things in the Bible. Like the time God used a donkey to save a wicked prophet. He used an ass to save one. It's pretty funny. You know, or the time that uh, the prophet Elisha was walking down the road and these kids start making fun of him for his bald head and God sends a horde of bears to maul him. 
It's tragic for them. That's pretty funny for me. I'm just saying. You know, there's some humorous things in the Bible. God uses humor. Number three, God doesn't woo us with cliches, but he pens the most brilliant poetry and gives us wisdom and insight to reveal his heart for his people and the love that the lover has for his beloved. Number four, God is clear about what he's looking for. He's looking for a people who through a repentant heart will turn to him and respond to him by loving him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so he can cover them and fill them with every good and perfect thing that can only come from God, the overflow of his life. And number five, God also includes a call to action. The first call is to salvation. Accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. Go from death to life, but then secondly, become an ambassador of the good news and go and tell others so they too can be redeemed, they can be set free, and they can enter into this holy family. It's a rescue mission. So when we approach the word of God with first understanding the theme of the story, that it's a romantic love story, that it's the greatest love story, and that this perfect holy God so filled with overflowing love was so compelled to not just create the universe, but create man and bestow upon man his heart. We can look at this Bible narrative and how he's cultivating a family for himself and that you are part of that family. If you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it will begin to change how you feel about yourself and your self-worth. It will begin to change how you think about yourself and your identity as you recognize who you are in Christ and who you are, what you mean to the Heavenly Father. You see, only what someone is willing to pay determines the cost of something or an object. Only what you're willing to pay will determine the cost of an object. And Jesus paid his whole life for you. You're worth something. I can't even put a price tag on. We let this begin to penetrate our hearts. We recognize what this story is about. It's going to create a shift in our spirit that will change the course of our lives. 1 John 4, 19, the Bible says, We love him only because he first loved us. To love him the way we should love him, the way he wants us to love him, it first begins with a revelation of his love for us understanding that he has loved us, that he's demonstrated his love for us, and he invites us into a deeper revelation of that love. It is his pursuit of us that causes our response to him. So today, I want to begin this journey by really looking at our lover's profile. Begin to unpack who this guy is, this God of ours, to discover what he's like, what he values, and how he thinks. And that discovering who he is will really begin to draw us into want to know him more. As we begin to taste and see that the Lord is really good. Now I just want to look at a couple of scriptures today. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1 and the Gospel of John chapter 1. That's where we'll be. And I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. The verses will be on the screen. You can also navigate to version, the Bible app. The, the notes will be there as well. But in Genesis chapter 1... The very first page 
of the story, the first four words of the story, give us a lot of information. They unpack and tell us so much about the reality of and the foundation of our existence, the reality of who God is and who our lover is and the, the reality of our existence. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, I want you to say this with me. It says, in the beginning, God. Say it again. In the beginning, God. Those first four words unpack so much. We know, and scientifically we know, that at some point all of existence has a beginning. There was a singularity that scientists, they, they can't figure out how to explain it, but they know scientifically there was a, a singularity that took place that was the beginning of all of creation. And, and they're coming away with all these theories to try to explain it, but what we know, and logically we know, that something cannot come from nothing. In order to have something, you have to have something. So what we see here is in the beginning when there was nothing, there wasn't absolutely nothing. There was something, and that something was God. God is the first cause. He's the uncreated one. He exists supreme outside of creation, outside of time. Before all there was, there was one and only, and that was God. But here in the Bible, this, the word we translate as God and our understanding of God comes from a Hebrew word, which is Elohim. And Elohim is not a singular word as God is or man is or woman is. Elohim is actually a plural word. If properly translated into English, it would not be God, but would be gods. In the beginning, there are gods. But this is not describing that there were multiple gods before creation. There was one God with a plurality within his nature. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, the prophet Isaiah says this, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, this is God speaking to the prophet, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the what? I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no other God. In the beginning, the first, there was one, there was Elohim. But notice here in this passage that it says the Lord, the King of Israel, and who? The Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. There was the King of Israel and the Lord. How can there be one if there's two? It's because Elohim is not singular. It's plural, but it refers to a singular entity. There is a plurality contained within God himself in the word God here, the, or the king of Israel, the Lord, the king of Israel, the word Lord is the word Jehovah. So in the beginning, there was Jehovah, or the father, king, and then secondly, also the redeemer, the commander of the armies of heaven, the redeemer, both of them speak together as one. It doesn't say, in the beginning, it says, we are the first, it says, I am the first, because together they are one. They are united. Though there are two, they also are one. So how can two proclaim they are one? It's because within the Elohim, there is a plurality. I'll show you from Genesis how we know this to be true. If we continue reading in Genesis chapter 1 and into verse 2, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered over the deep waters. And then, who's there? The Spirit of God hovers over the waters. So in the beginning, there was God, there was Elohim, 
But then you see the Spirit of God, one of the aspects of God Himself, one of the persons of the Trinity, is hovering over the waters. He is waiting in anticipation for someone to declare the Word to create, to begin the process. He's waiting in anticipation for creation to ensue. He's waiting for the direction from the Father and the Son. To know that Jesus was not just a man who walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. We look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and hear the revelation from the gospel writers, those who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God, the Redeemer, and Jehovah, God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And aren't you happy that the darkness can never extinguish the light? John, the apostle, expands on who was in the beginning, not just the king, Jehovah of Israel, but he also identifies who this Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is. And John calls him the Word. The definition of the word, word, in Greek is translated in the Bible. It literally means a word uttered by a living voice. It embodies a conception or idea. The word in Greek is the word logos. So we could change it. In the beginning was the logos. The logos was with God and the logos was God. It is literally the uttered voice of God. He's also a person of the Trinity, the person of Elohim. It is the embodiment. So if Jehovah God is the Father, if Jehovah God is the mind of God, the Redeemer is the Word of God. He is the materialization of the very mind and heart of God. You see, thought is merely a thought until it's spoken. But once a thought is spoken, it becomes a very powerful force. In Proverbs, the Bible says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. James, in his, his epistle to the church, says, if we could control our tongues, then we could become holy in every way. But the tongue is like a fire that is set on from the fire of hell. It's uncontrollable. The tongue is very powerful. There are power in our words. When our thoughts are manifest into word, it releases a power either to build up or to tear down, blessing or cursing. So imagine the power that's released when the thoughts of God become manifest into physical reality. Jesus is the manifestation of the very heart and mind of God. In Genesis 1, in the account of creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you continue to read in the chapter, it says, as God creates, in verse 5, it says, and then God called. In verse 3, it says, and God said. In verse 5, it says, and God called. In verse 6, it says, and God said, and he created. In verse 8, it says, and God called. In verse 9, it says, God said. And in verse 14, it says, God said. In verse 20, it says, and God said. The way God brought everything into existence was he spoke it into existence. Through the word did God create. That's why John says nothing was created that was created except being created through the word. In verse 22, 
It says, and God blessed, and so on and so forth. You get the idea. In every act of creation, in every day, it is the word of God that's released that brings forth the creation. Again, in John chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says, He existed, the word, the logos, existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. Nothing was created except through him. And the word gave life to everything that was created. Somebody say, the word gave life. The word gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone. So Jehovah, the Father, God, is the chief architect. The Word is the master builder through whom His life and power through the Holy Spirit brought forth all things into existence. And this Word is the physical manifestation of the glorious God whose glorious light emanates and shines through Him. This Redeemer, this Word, is the lover of our souls. And He is the source of all life. He is God revealed to us, who we know as the Son Most High. He's the very revelation of the magnificent God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. He sustains everything by the mighty power of His command, and He has cleansed us from our sins. He sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Before time, the Word was honored in heaven as God, completely equal and glorious with the Father. The Father created everything through the Word. The Word was the glorious creator along with the Father. All things were brought into existence through Him, and now, as He is sitting at the right hand of power, all things are held together by the power of His Word, His command. This is indefinable, unexplainable power and glory. This is no low, lowly pauper that we see in the movies and we see in the illustrations and, and think about when we think of Jesus, this pauper defeated on a cross who made atonement for us, praise the Lord. But he has returned now through the ascension after his resurrection to his celestial home and he has taken his rightful place in glory as the one who radiates the glory of God through all creation. He is the one in whom the Father is revealed, for no man has seen the Father. But if you've seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. Even all creation in heaven to see the Father must look through the Son. You look in the face of the Son to see the glory of the Father. There are no human words that adequately describe the beauty of His holiness. Every word falls short. There's no end to His majesty. There's no... Uh, defining of his glory his brilliance and his splendor as the light of glory who leads to life and everlasting life it's indefinable i'm having a hard time finding words to describe it i can't comprehend it and there is no end to his power and his might who is this king of glory? It is the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord prepared for battle. In whom, where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He is rightly called the redeemer before time because he is the originator of life. He brought all things to life, but through his life, he is also the restorer of all things. We brought death, but through Jesus, he has once again restored us to life. 
Holy Spirit, that the glory of Christ would now rise up in our hearts. God, I ask you that you would bring us to our knees, Lord, with the revelation of your Son, that we could not contain his magnificence, that the revelation of his glorious might and his power of this creator, God, would so shake us to the core. To think about the awesome power of his nature, the power of his being, the glory of his existence in all creation. It says that the heavens declare his handiwork. The heavens come nowhere near describing his glory and his power. Yet even in creation, we see a foreshadowing of things to come in the Genesis account. After he makes everything, day one, two, three, four, five, we get to day six. And something changes. Something shifts. God no longer speaks. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, this is what the Bible says. It says, and then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. The one who could speak and make it so did not speak, but he formed. He formed us from the dust of the ground. This reveals that, number one, we're not like all of the other created beings that were spoken into existence. We are something beyond this creation. Not only are we made in his image to be like him, which sets us apart from all other creation, but how he created us is very unique and something we need to meditate on and think about because this word formed, literally in the original language, means to squeeze into shape like a potter, which means he took his time. He was gentle, he was careful, and he planned it with brilliance. The Son, who spoke all things into existence, who is beyond physicality, took on physicality so he could touch his creation. He took on a physical form in order to bring us to life. And as he shaped us, as he formed us, as he was satisfied with his creation, does he speak? No. What does he do? He breathes upon us the Holy Spirit. Through the breath of the Holy Spirit, we receive life and eternal life into our souls. Not just so we could live, but so that we could always live with Him forever. He never wanted a separation or a departure from an eternal relationship with His beloved. Imagine if you could design the perfect mate for you with no flaw. Everything is perfect. That is what you are. You're without flaw. You're the divine creation of God, made in His image. By creating Adam and Eve, He put these two beings together, and within two human beings are found the building blocks and genetic code that would be the source of everyone coming after. Which means in the moments as he's fearfully and wonderfully making the man and the woman, he's also planning you and you and you and you and you. 
before time. He saw you. Why? Because in that creation, he made it possible and purposed your birth, your story, your life. The glorious word took on physicality to bring all of us to life. And the same word, the Redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies, would one day, after sin entered into the world and after he lost his bride, his people, his prize, he would one day take on physicality again. Philippians chapter 2 says, Though he was equal with God, he did not find it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a servant, even to die the death on a cross. One day, this glorious God, the King of Israel, this, this Redeemer, this Lord of hosts, the Word, the Logos, the one who reveals the Father, the glorious Creator of all creation, would one day stoop down to become His creation, would take on physicality, not so that He could touch us and form us, but so He could give His life, shed His blood, have His body broken, have the very object of His affection, turn on Him, betray Him, murder Him, also that he could do what he did at the beginning again. He could undo the curse that was upon them. And he could bring us again once to life. In John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus appears to his disciples. And here's what he does. The same God who formed us with his hands has now had his hands pierced. The same God who walked with us in the cool of the garden in the evening of the day has now had his feet pierced, his side pierced, his blood shed, and he's been glorious, vind gloriously vindicated, raised from the dead. He appears to his disciples, and the first thing he does when he meets with them again is he says, peace be with you. I'm not angry. I'm not upset. I'm not here to judge or to get revenge. I'm here in peace as the Father has sent me. Now I'm sending you on the same mission. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. His first act of creation when he formed man becomes his first act of recreation when he brings about new life. He restores. They were dead, but now because the word, the logos of God, this glorious creator breathes on them, they have now become to life. The one who planned you, fearfully and wonderfully designed the complexities of your body, your personality, who set your life into motion, was not content with you being lost to him, beloved. Your creator God entered humanity, gave himself. The power behind creation is still creating as he's holding all things in by the power of his command. He is waiting for his people to call out onto his name so he can breathe on them once again. He creates humanity and recreates us again. The Bible says all those who are in Christ are a new creation. It's not that he remade something old into something new. It's that you've become something all new altogether. You are now, for the first time in all of history, a creature that can bear and house the presence of God with inside. The Spirit of God has come to live within you. It's never happened before in all of creation. You're altogether new. And now with the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God within you, He has what He've always longed for, a people He will never be departed from. Why can love never separate us? Because nothing can now separate us from His Spirit. 
He's restored fellowship. He's restored communion with his beloved. So why would this all-sufficient, eternal, glorious, beautiful, majestic being so perfectly complete within the Godhead, the divinity of his own relationship in the Trinity with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, absent of nothing, to him belongs all the power, wisdom, and glory of all creation. Why would he go to the lengths he did to not just create you, but then rescue you and recreate you? Why? It's because you are the object of his affection. You are his beloved. And he thought of you. He prepared for you. He set a plan in motion to meet you to begin a relationship with you, to commune with you, and enjoy you for all eternity. From the very first verse of the book of the Bible, we can see the great romance unveiled and set into motion as the father provides a bride for his son. And through this story, we'll discover how the son goes after his bride. Our lover is the glorious creator. He desires a relationship with you so he can do something new in you, connect you to his heart. Not because he needs to, but simply because he wants to, because he loves you, and he's madly in love with you. So we focus on our glorious creator, and we begin to close the message like you to humor me for a minute and do an exercise with me that I believe will be a powerful thing in your life. If we could have every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, and begin to play the music softly. I want you to, for this moment, just relax where you are and begin to just breathe deeply. And I want you to forget every image you have of Jesus in your mind. When you think of Jesus, there are a lot of things the media and culture has tried to display to reveal Jesus, but I want you just to forget it. And I want you to breathe deeply. I want you to relax in this moment because in a moment I'm going to read a revelation of what the glorious creator looks like. The creator of the universe, the lover of our souls. And I'm asking the Holy Spirit in this moment, I've been praying, and I ask you now even Holy Spirit that as we read the scripture, God, that your word would come alive and that you would reveal Jesus to us. Reveal him afresh now, Holy Spirit. As I read these verses, what I want you to do is allow the words to form pictures in your mind. Allow your mind to think of, to dream about, to envision the very things we're speaking of. It's okay if your mind wanders a little bit, but just focus on what Jesus looks like and allow yourself to not just think about it and envision it, 
but to feel his presence. Revelation 1, 10 through 16. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the Spirit. And we worship you now in the Spirit, Lord. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the city of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool as white as snow and his eyes were like flames of fire his feet were polished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves he held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance Continue to picture that in your mind and connect your heart to it. We're going to remain there in just a moment. And I just want you with that picture in your mind, just begin to praise God. Just softly, in whisper form, just praise Him for what you see. Stay keyed into this moment and allow the reality of the glorious God, our Redeemer, our Savior, the lover of our souls, to touch us deep in our hearts. John says, When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw the seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe, picture the white robe, with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were like white wool as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. 
His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. Lord, you are glorious. You are awesome. We are humbled to be your children. Jesus, we're so privileged to be your bride. Holy Spirit, refresh us today with a fresh revelation of the Son of God. Let the glory of heaven fill our hearts now, Holy Spirit, as we declare that he is worthy Jesus, you are worthy. Jesus, we worship you as mighty God, as the King of kings and Lord of lords. None compares to you. There's no God beside you. All powers and principalities bow before your authority. All wisdom comes from you. All knowledge comes from you. All strength comes from you and you alone. Break our hearts for our sin. Bring us to our knees in repentance. That we would seek your face and turn from our wicked ways. And that your glorious presence shine in our hearts and our lives. God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as the Redeemer, as the Savior, as the lover of souls, I pray that right now, just in this moment, they would call out to you. Your word says anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved right now. That they would call out to you for forgiveness. And they would receive you as the Lord of their lives. Praise you, Lord, in this place. In the name of Jesus.